0: Friends, welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew Lombardi here with you as always, along with Stephen Dercota. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode, and uh, very excited to, to understate it, uh, to have uh, Rabbi Bradley Artson here with us today. And uh, Brad, welcome or Rabbi Artson, welcome to uh, the Laity Podcast for from Los
1: Angeles. Thank you. Happy to be with you guys. And I've been Brad longer than rabbi, so feel free to call me.
0: Brad. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I wasn't sure what protocol was. I'll do respect, of course. Well, um, uh, Rabbi Artson is, uh, of course, a, a rabbi as well as an author um, and uh, is, is, of course, also a professor, dean of the, the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and... Um, uh, man we're we're having uh Rabbi Artson on for a number of reasons but we've been following his work um and talks and podcasts and uh, a number of things for the last you know handful of years and uh, I'll, I'll let the work speak for itself in a moment but but uh, Rabbi Artson if you don't mind would love for you to maybe give our listeners who don't know you uh, a little bit of background
1: sure so Um, I grew up in San Francisco, pretty anti-religious growing up, so uh, not at all observant, uh, complete atheist, uh, went to, you know, normal schools, um, not parochial in any way, Um, and in college is where I kind of discovered God, and I joke that I uh, converted in everything but label, so Jewish religion kind of came to me in college. A very close love of God came to me in college. Admittedly, it could have all been hormonal because the same semester that I found God, I found the woman who has been my wife for 35 years. <laughs> wow. So you never know what role biology played in all of that. Um, had not planned on going into the rabbinate. Uh, intended to be a politician. I worked for United States Senator Alan Cranston one summer. Second summer out, I was an LBJ intern in the U.S. Congress with Congressman Burton. Third summer, I was an intern for the Assemblyman from San Francisco, a man named Willie Brown. He became Speaker of the California Assembly, and he hired me for after I graduated. So I went back my final year knowing I was going to be a legislative aide to Mr. Brown. I worked for the Speaker for two years. During that time, I realized I did not really want to be a politician. I didn't like the life. Mm. Um, And I didn't know what else to do. I had always had fantasies uh, from college on of going to study in a rabbinical school at the end of my career. And my then uh, fiancé said to me, well, if you're going to do that, you don't know what life is going to bring. You should go study now. So I went to New York to rabbinical school. Uh, studied for five years, took a pulpit in Southern California um, and was there for 10 years and then was called to be the head of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at American Jewish University. And I've been here for about 20 years. Um, Love what I get to do. Love shaping uh, talented young people and helping clear out the rubble so that they can go shine their light in the world. And love the fact that I get to teach and read and think uh, and put a message out there that's humane and caring and integrated. Uh, along the way, discovered process theology. I joke that, um, that I invented process theology uh, and then was shocked to discover that there was this guy named Whitehead who beat me to it by about 100%. <laughs> um, so I have published a couple books on Process Theology, uh, one called God of Belonging and Relationship, a second one called Renewing the Process of Creation, Looking at Science and Religion Together, and this was really prompted by something personal. You know, I, um, we can talk about this more later, yeah. but I have twins. Uh, they're now 26, my daughter Shira and my son Jacob, and Jacob was diagnosed with a pretty severe autism. Um, And that created a kind of religious spiritual crisis for me, because uh, a God who would give my son autism wasn't a God I could worship or serve. Mm. And so that's all pushed me in the direction of kind of this new integration. And then I discovered there were fellow travelers out there that were um, paddling on the same creek as me. And so um, that's kind of the long version of the story.
2: So, so when you when you uh, we you, you converted to Judaism or, or you became practicing, how,
1: how would you how would you describe that? Well, um, I I initially went to talk to the rabbi on campus and told him I wanted to think about God, and and life pushed me in that way in a couple ways. The first of which is I had two roommates who were evangelical Christians. And one of them in particular was just the kindest, most decent person I'd ever met. And it made me think maybe there's something to this religion business. And I couldn't believe what he believed, but he was the one that kind of at least made me feel like it was worth checking out what faith can do. Mm. Um, and then the second was an ethical question. I never understood if there was no God, if the universe is just dead matter that comes together, then what makes something ethical? What makes something moral? As opposed to just, I like it and I don't like it. If all morality is, is human consensus, then honestly, there were more Nazis than there were Jews. By that criteria, the Holocaust wasn't immoral. Mm. The only way to say it's immoral is to say that the source of good and evil is not contained by human consensus. Um, And so all of that pushed me to thinking about God and religion. And I went to talk to the rabbi who who was a Holocaust survivor himself, remarkable, remarkable man named Ben Zion Gold. Uh, And he said, there's no neutral place to think about God from. You can either not think about it or you can think about it. And if you think about it, you can try being a believer and see if that fits, So he got me to agree to go to synagogue every Sabbath for two months. He said less than that, and you'll spend your whole time wondering when to sit and when to stand and what page you're on. (laughs) Uh, And he also gave me a book by a German-Jewish philosopher named Franz Rosenzweig, who himself returned to religion. And within those two months, I literally was swept off my feet. I fell in love with God. I fell in love with Jewish tradition and faith and the Bible and our heritage. Uh, And I fell in love with a community that wasn't afraid to argue or to think or to question. Instead of a sermon from the rabbi, the congregation that he ran was one in which different congregants would lead a conversation about the weekly Torah reading. And I was utterly enchanted. It was just a remarkable, remarkable community and I have been in love with that tradition ever since.
2: Brad, when you, when, when, you were, when, when you began to practice Judaism, were you introduced to process thought already, or did that come later? And, and, if, and if you weren't, what was, what was the framework um, of God that you had in the beginning?
1: So I was not. I, uh, like most Jews, I had never heard of process thought. Um, Whitehead still needs a good PR firm to help him out. <laughs> and so i didn't i was introduced to a kind of middle of the road judaism that's more or less was conservative judaism although i didn't know it at the time so the most um traditionalist branch of judaism is orthodox the most liberal branches reform conservative are kind of in the middle And uh, so, you know, it it embraces the tradition and at the same time struggles to embrace modernity uh, and to allow both of them to shape each other. Um, And that suited me fine. So it was a place where men and women were treated equally and women had equal liturgical rights and responsibilities as the men. Anyone could voice their opinion. But people observed the dietary laws, observed the Sabbath, and I grew into it. I was really attracted to that more robust form of Jewish faith and observance. But theologically, um, it was kind of mushy. Like, you know, I think I believed in a God who was in control, uh, compassionate, loving, kind, just, uh, uh, but didn't really sweat the details as much as my Orthodox friends thought God did. Hmm. And that kind of worked. I think for a lot of people, that is their idea of God.
2: Yeah. So, so can you can you explain uh, what process thought is and what it is that what it, what specifically about process thought that that interested you?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I, I really did stumble into a processing thought before I found that there was such a thing. So um, can we assume that everyone who's listening knows what process thought is? Probably not. Probably
2: not. Yeah
0: so you maybe you could give us a 30,000 foot, which is probably unfair. but I honestly think for, for some of our listeners it will be uh, it, will, it will be brand new in terms of actually having yeah. language
1: around it. Great, So let me start in a different direction. I started to I, I did my doctorate because I couldn't stand the idea of going into therapy. My mother is a psychoanalyst, my sister is a <laughs> therapist. I've seen how the stew gets made. Uh, And so I didn't want... But I needed to work through how it could be that I do good all day and my son has autism. So I decided to do a doctorate, which would force me to go back to my teenage love, which was science. So I read a lot of neurobiology and cognitive neurobiology. I read a lot about astronomy and cosmogony, how universes get made I read a lot about Darwinian evolution, um, and and all of it was to try to understand the universe so I could figure out how could this happen, and what's God doing in all of this. And I kind of stumbled into an understanding that the old Newtonian idea that time and space are absolute, and that God is up there, out there, in charge of everything, seeing the future just as God sees the past, that. I didn't believe in that God anymore. And that, in fact, that God had been imposed on the God of the Bible and the God of Western Mm. religion because Aristotle and Plato gave people a coherent way of turning it into theology. But that that add-on of Greek thought didn't do monotheism a favor because it created this idea that for God to be all-powerful and all-knowing, we had to suspend our sense of God being all good. And by and large, without admitting it, that's what Western religion has done. So a God who is totally in control, a God who this universe is exactly what God wants it to be, is a God who is the cause of unspeakable suffering for innocence. Mm -hmm. And, And that's just unbiblical. So... Um, So I came up with this notion that, you know, now with relativity and quantum and the way we understand neurobiology, that everything is in the process of becoming. And that becoming is way more important than being. And that a universe in which everything is becoming is interrelated, and meaning comes out of our relationships each to each other. And then I started to read on that, and that's when I discovered process thought. I read a book on panentheism and there was a chapter in it on process panentheism and it's like oh my goodness all this stuff that I thought was original to me someone else has already come up with and that's when I reached out to John Cobb who's the granddaddy of process theology he's out in Claremont California the nicest most wonderful Methodist minister from Georgia uh, retired professor of theology great man and he, gave, he called me up and said, I wrote a paper laying out this theology, and he called me up out of the blue and said, come spend a day with me. Wow, that's awesome. It was awesome. A little terrifying. Awesome. <laughs> um, and, I with him, and what I discovered is that there's a group of people who share this commitment to a really strong personal sense of God, but also don't believe in a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful. In other words, we prioritize God's goodness in all frames of reference. We accept the biblical witness that God is a God of chesed, which is loving kindness, a God of rachamim, which is compassion, and a God of mishpat, of justice. But that means that the universe isn't fully in God's control. God is by far the most powerful, most Uh, capable of exerting influence, but God does that by invitation, not by coercion. And, And that changes everything. Once you say that God works by inviting us to make the optimal decision, which process people call the lure, then God is no longer the source of our suffering. God didn't give your loved one cancer. God didn't cause this person to get hit by a car. God doesn't want us to suffer. And it's not a punishment or retribution. Um, It's the working out of nature. And in nature, there is chance, and there is chaos. And the divine is always working with the chaos to invite it towards cosmos. Um, But we have a role to play in that we can choose to listen to that optimal choice, that lure that God plants into our intuition. And religion has a role in training us to heed that intuition better and more transparently, but it's our choice. So God doesn't dictate the future. God provides us with options, lets us have an intuitive sense of which option is optimal And then God is vulnerable to our choice. We can literally give God joy by making the optimal choice and thereby advancing God's sovereignty. Or we can cause cause God pain by not choosing the optimal choice. And that then becomes a permanent part of who we are on our journey through life. Um, That, in a nutshell, is how I understand process theology. I find it utterly persuasive, both in terms of suddenly, with that understanding, there's no longer a war between religion and science. The two of them can be allies. Good science and good religion can work together. Um, And it also, I think, is a better hermeneutical tool, a better literary tool for understanding the prayer book and the Bible, because it doesn't impose upon it the straitjacket of this bizarre Greek-born theology of a timeless, unchanging God, who is in control of everything, and nonetheless punishes us for the way things turn out.
2: Mm-hmm. So, how did you, when you were wrestling with things with your son, how did how did process thought really help you reframe that and uh, and and find uh, I guess, I guess more hope.
1: Well, so, you know, with Jacob, what process allowed me to do is realize that God didn't give Jacob autism, that autism is a genetic mutation, and that Jacob's suffering causes God to grieve as well. But process also taught me that God. By the way, these are lessons that are found in the Psalms as well. It's one of the ways that I think process is really just the systematic laying out of biblical assumptions, Um, that God never, ever abandons anyone. So what I would talk to Jacob about is I don't believe in a God who gave you autism. I do believe in a God who is working with you and in you and through you to help you have a meaningful life, but you got to do the heavy lifting. So God mm. can't do it without you. And, and, and that really changed because I didn't, I didn't then have, I could mourn God, Jacob's autism, and I could grieve and I could hate it, but I no longer had a bully in the sky who was causing it. Instead, God became, in Whitehead's phrase, my cosmic companion. And God was the one rooting for Jacob and reminding me to get up and get back in the game.
2: Mm.
1: And and the climax of that for me was Jacob's doctors all told us time and again, he's never going to do this, he's never going to do that. Um, Jacob's mom never listened to that, my wife Ilana, and Jacob didn't listen to that. And the day that he walked across the high school stage and Took his diploma. Um, when he came off the stage holding that diploma in his blue academic robe, wow. I was crying and he came over to me to hand me the diploma. And I said, Jacob, you and God have done a great miracle. Wow. You know, because other miracles they can do in a lot in Hollywood or in a cartoon. But to get an autistic kid to be able to earn a high school diploma, no movie screen can do that. you and God did that together mm. and and process allowed me to see that allowed me to rejoice in that
0: mm, that's man that's awesome that's very compelling and uh appreciate you sharing that you know as a as a Christian that grew up in a, in a relatively conservative camp um, and for many of our listeners that have done the same or maybe are still you know, kind of in that space, this picture of God, this all-loving, um, frankly n- not no longer kind of omnipotent, but uh, th- this process God that you describe is very compelling. And for those who are, uh, to your point, and immediately, if you have a background like I do, for whatever reason, right, our gut inclination is, but wait, that's not w- that, that. And you meant a comment about that being a very biblical thing my gut reaction is but but wait what about all of this god i see in scripture particularly around what what is described as wrath or um you know mandating the mass slaughter of men women and children and this is stuff we've talked about before but not necessarily in a in a process framework how do you kind of begin without going scripture by scripture or passage by passage how do you begin? To kind of give folks um, like us a groundwork for understanding, even how we our hermeneutical lens as we look at the Old Testament and some of these, you know, uglier passages, and and how to make sense of them while still upholding the integrity of of inspired Scripture.
1: Great. So that's a really important question, and Jews and Christians, and frankly atheists, ask me that at about this point in any presentation I make, too. <laughs> Let's stop you right there. there. Please explain exactly. Right on schedule. I do want to point out a little piece of bias that snuck in there that I'm sure you don't intend. Please. Um, but to equate the ugly biblical stories with the Hebrew scriptures strikes these Jewish ears as weird. Hmm. hmm. Um, you know, it's in the New Testament, I believe, where Jesus says that what's meant for the children, you don't feed to the dogs. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of ugly. Mm. It's in the Greek scripture where Jesus goes into the holy temple and he decides he's offended by money lenders who are making it possible for pilgrims who've come from far away to offer sacrifices in the temple. And he rips apart all the property there any of your pilgrims who have been to Israel, the first thing they did when they landed was go to a bank and change their money so they could buy olive wood Bibles, right? That's what Jesus disrupted in the temple. Mm. So, so let's talk about ugly in the Bible, but I just need to liberate it from thinking that's restricted to one part of the Bible as opposed to the whole thing.
2: Mm. That's, that's a great point. I mean, yeah, there's even, there's, there's, there's a place where Paul... Just the something about how all, uh, it's, it's like a racial slur. All, all yeah,
1: There's,
2: there's, there's plenty of and,
1: problematic yeah. passages. I think there are, are ways of reading them better, and there are ways of reading them worse. Um, but I just want to disabuse people from the notion that Old Testament is judgy and harsh and cruel, mm-hmm. as opposed to sweet, innocent, loving New Testament that's a distortion of both and a disservice to god
2: i think think, yeah i agree i appreciate you sharing that
1: okay so but let's nonetheless there are really disturbing passages in the bible um so what do what do i do with it and how does process allow me a lens to understand it better so the first thing that process allows me to do is to understand that god didn't drop a book on our head Right, So so the way God gave us the Bible is by bubbling it out of our hearts. So ancient Israel, over the course of multiple generations, looked deep within to that lure, that, that inner voice, and distilled that voice into stories and practices. Things you should do, things you should not do. And then they polished those stories, and they integrated them. So I don't think that believing in a God-given Bible is in contradiction to the documentary hypothesis that the Bible emerged from different schools in ancient Israel. And what that means is I don't necessarily have to believe, and I don't, that each and every word of the Bible literally came from the mouth of God. Right? I believe that there's huge wisdom in it, And one of the easiest ways to miss the wisdom is to think that the only way to believe in the Bible is to believe in it literally word for word, Mm -hmm. right? Let me give you a non-loaded example. When I was in high school, we had to memorize a poem by the Scottish poet Robert Burns. And all I remember these days is the first line, my love is like a red, red rose, Now, if you read that poem the way most true believers read Bible, you say you have to believe it literally or you don't believe it at all. All right. So when you say my love is like a red, red rose, I know the qualities of a rose. A rose is smooth and smelly from the neck up and green and prickly from the neck down. (laughs) You've just killed that poem. (laughs) A little right? less romantic, yeah. yes. So, so, but, but if you read the poem as poetry, what he's saying is that in the same way that a rose stands out among other flowers, that's how my love stands out in my eyes. Now that you can talk about. So the first thing I want to say is that Jewish tradition invites us to read the Bible as poetry, as a shirah, a poem. So if we do that, then we're not asking ourselves questions of literal contradiction. We're saying, what's the message of the story? So let me give you a beautiful example that is 1,700 years old. The rabbis of Midrash, which is classical Bible commentary, ask, why is it that God created one man and one woman in the garden? God could have made multiple why one of each? And they give two answers. The first answer, they say, is so that no person can claim that their ancestry is more noble than any other. Now, that's amazing. Because even if you don't believe there was literally a guy named Adam and a gal named Eve, and there was a garden, and it was this big, and it had these kinds of trees in it, even if you think this is a story designed to teach a point, and the point is, No human being can claim superiority over any other human being because of ancestry. Hmm. Well, here's the thing. Is that literally true or not? That human dignity is equal regardless of ancestry? I personally would stake my life Mm, on that. The United States is predicated on the truth of that claim. So... So I think the Bible taught us something that is absolutely indispensable and true. And I think that if we get into arguments of, was Eve a brunette or a blonde, which is what that kind of fundamentalist misreading forces you to do, how tall was she, how fat was she, how old was she when she was made, Mm -hmm. right? That distracts us from what's the divine message of the story, one of which is people's worth is not based on ancestry, we all have the same ancestors. And two, the rabbis say, the story teaches us something precious, which is when a human artist makes a mold, and then casts that mold, no matter how many times things come out of the mold, they all come out identical. But all people come out of Adam and Eve, and no two people are the same. Which means It's really a story about how God loves diversity. God loves our differences. And therefore, we have to, too. Now, same question. Do I believe in that lesson? Yeah, I'll stake my life on that one, too. So this strategy of reading the Bible not for literal, factual information, which reduces the Bible to a mediocre book, but instead what's the wisdom that those stories contain? What's the point that it's making? And is that point true or not? Well, then suddenly the Bible becomes a book whose wisdom is still in advance of our contemporary practice. So let's take the one that you mentioned that everyone loves to throw up. What about the command to wipe out the Canaanite nation? So the first thing I have to say is that if you read the Bible whole, That's a command that ancient Israel did not fulfill, Hmm. right? So Joshua enters the land, and there are still Canaanites. King David sets up his kingdom 200 years later, still Canaanites. By the time of Jesus, still Canaanites. So if that were actually perceived by ancient Israel as a command, that would not have been the case. So clearly they didn't take it that way. They took it as some biblical hyperbole right? Interestingly, I'll share with this with you and your readers, there's only one other example in the ancient Near East of a people commanded to exterminate an entire people. There's a stone on which a king, Merneptah, um, scratched out uh, his names, and he's the first king, pharaoh of Egypt, to tell us that Israel is located mm-hmm. in Canaan. And we have an ancient document from Canaanites in which they claim to have wiped out Israel. So wow. it looks like the Israelites and the Canaanites were boasting about wiping each other out when in fact they did never do such a thing. But but what does the Bible portray, for example, Amalek, who we're told to wipe out as? It portrays them as a people who deliberately attacked the weak and the orphans and the hungry. So that's Amalek in the Bible, and we're told to wipe them out. So again, what's the lesson? Is the lesson if you meet someone and they say, Hi, my last name is Amalek, you're supposed to kill him? No, in fact, in Jewish law, a person who kills someone claiming that they're Canaanite is guilty of murder. Right? It's prohibited. Hmm. But I think what it's telling us is if you meet someone who's picking on the poor and the weak, your job is to stop them. Well, that's true. We could use that lesson now. We can always use that lesson. So what process lets me do is get rid of a stupid way of misreading the Bible, where I treat it like a really mediocre textbook. And then I'm stuck saying and asserting all kinds of awful things, which religious people routinely do. What process allows me to do is say, no, no, this is like, you know those books that they used to sell in the bookstores where if you open it up and you let your eye look through the book into the depth, you let it get blurry, these 3D things jump out? Well, that's the Bible. If you just read on the surface, it's this weird Iron Age text that's easy to make fun of. But if you train yourself to look through it into its depth, then these cathedrals of meaning jump out in 3d that still direct us today to a higher way of living
2: you know one of the things that i have a hard time trying to wrap my mind around is like uh in the old in 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 the hebrew scriptures god is consistently uh he's he's portrayed as as a liberator he's you know concerned for the oppressed and and I'm, i'm trying to understand how um what what is it what is it what does it mean for God to be the liberator of the oppressed when when you take away sort of the, the guarantee that comes with omnipotence, right? Because at least when you have an omnipotent God, it's like, well, he's going he gets to do whatever he wants, period. And so if he decides he wants to jump in and do something, he can. So how do you um I, I, I imagine you've gotten that question before. So how how do you answer that?
1: I have. It's also a good question. I'm not meaning to question your originality here. Um <laughs> Look, the challenge is a God who's all-powerful, a God who things always work out the way they want, simply replaces a human Pharaoh with a divine one. That's not progress. That's not setting us free. We're only set free if God is different than Pharaoh, right? does not intend to be another despot. And... The God of the Bible sets us free because that's what God does. God is interested in our devotion, not in our servitude. So God wants us to freely choose to worship and to serve. That's the opposite of a pharaoh. So what does liberation mean? Well, I told you one liberation story. Liberation is... My son being so determined to graduate high school that even though everyone said it was impossible, he went ahead and did it. God's liberation is I had my, my beloved grandmother who was legally blind her entire adult life. My grandfather did all the shopping, paid all the bills, all of that. When he died, everybody thought she would die soon thereafter or be institutionalized. And she refused. And she lived on her own for another 10 15 years. Right? That's God and my grandmother together doing something nobody thought was possible. Right? And we see that all the time. We see things that were never possible made possible by people who won't give up on themselves and who tap into some source of energy and resilience and determination that suddenly they're doing what nobody thought they could possibly do. And You know, um, look, we never thought there'd be an African-American president, and there was. And that's not to say by a long shot that America has dealt fully with racism at all, but things that we thought were impossible, it just means never have happened yet. You know, there was never a people exiled from their land who wandered in diaspora for 2,000 years, who then were able to return home and revive an ancient biblical language and a democracy. It was impossible until we did it. And then suddenly, it's not impossible anymore. So, And in our own lives, we each do that. We each live lives of courage and resilience in which we break through what people thought was impossible. Um, and that's what a liberator God does. God fills our heart with a vision of what's possible, even if it was never previously possible. God inspires us to have the courage to know that we can do this. And then God applauds us as we get up and we do what had been impossible a moment before. That takes God's engagement. So Process joins with the Bible in saying that God never abandons us, never gives up on us, and is working with us and in us every moment to let us break through into what had been impossible, but isn't anymore. When you bring
2: this to 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 Jewish communities for the first time, and 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 you're 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 presenting this vision of God, what's generally the reaction? Do you get do you get pushback, Are people concerned that you're sort of off the the reservation, or how do, how do people respond?
1: So, you know, it's really interesting. And in this regard, I think it is very different being a Jewish process person than being a Christian process person. Um, And that may just be a difference in the demographics of the Jewish community. Um, When I speak at a congregation about this, I start off by talking about why God isn't omnipotent all-powerful why god isn't omniscient all-knowing why these are not biblical concepts at all but that god is in fact all good that's a very biblical concept and then i lay out a process understanding and and as i start to talk i can see people's dukes go up like they look angry at me and they look really disturbed and they look like i'm about to do something terrible um And then as I'm 10 minutes into it, I can see people's eyes starting to glisten and get wet. Mm. And the dukes start going down. And by the end of the talk, people are coming up to me in tears and saying, I've always thought that. I just didn't know I was allowed to. And there are always two or three people who are spitting angry and who come up to tell me how mad they are at me. Or they go to tell the rabbi of the synagogue, how could you invite this guy? Um, And my comment to those who come to talk to me is, look, I may be wrong, and you're allowed to not agree with me. One of the benefits of serving a non-coercive God is God's okay with you're not accepting my theology. That's fine. (laughs) Um, But what you need to ask yourself is why are you so mad? Like if someone says something that's wrong, okay, it's just wrong. But the anger, that suggests that this is tapping something really deep. And you need to look at that. You need to look at what that is. But, you know, um, whereas many process people in Christianity feel somewhat marginalized to mainstream Christianity, um, my denomination printed my two books of process theology. And I'm training rabbinical students in one of the two centers of rabbinic training for conservative Jews, and they all wow. walk out exposed to this stuff, and many of them walk out with process theology as their theology. So um, so the response in the Jewish community is very different. The other thing I just want to put out there is I have a public figure Facebook page. Um, so for those of you who are interested in hearing more of my talks or I put pieces of biblical wisdom every week up on it. I do a short uh, video from the weekly Torah reading, meant not to help people with changing their ritual practice or even just for Jews. It's really meant for people who want some wisdom to live a better life. What's interesting to me is I have about 60,000 followers on this page, of whom about half are not Jewish, and of whom about 10,000 are Muslim. Many of them Wow. Because everybody's interested in wisdom. And it's not about wanting to switch from column A to column B. They're not interested in converting. I got an email a couple weeks ago from a guy who told me, hi, I'm so-and-so, and and I'm from Saudi Arabia, and I've never met a Jew, and you're my rabbi. And that's because I think we live in an age in which people are willing to embrace wisdom regardless of its source.
0: What has your... Response been largely from, from the Christian community for those, and you will have to forgive me. I don't, I don't quite have a full grasp on how, where exactly you've spent time in terms of Christian circles, and in either interviews or curious if you've had broader speaking engagements or if churches have brought you on. But what's the feedback been from those circles?
1: Well, um, you know, I think the more liberal churches appreciate someone rooted in scripture who can present God's loving nature in the way that I tried to do. And it always intrigues them. You know, Jews are kind of magical. So, um, I, I agree. People are looking, well, until you get to know us, but, but in any case, from a distance, we look pretty magical and a little weird. And like, you know, the Bible came to life in me. Um, so there's a bit of that. Um, For people who are very committed to a particular understanding of Christianity, meaning that Jesus is God, not not a follower of God, not someone who made himself transparent to God's will. For people who are very strongly Trinitarian, this is problematic, Um, but it's not my problem. And frankly, there are a lot of people out there whose love of Christianity isn't based on a particularly rigid theology. It's based on they love Jesus. They love these stories. They come to God through the Greek scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures. And so anyone who can give them a way to love God more and a way to see the work of Jesus, not as about sending sinners to hell, but as reaching out to the outcast and the rejected and to offering a ministry of love as uh, as he did, not as a rebellion against biblical religion, but as its fulfillment. Um, a lot of Christians resonate to that. Uh, there's there's a good, I don't know, 20 25,000 people on my Facebook page who are practicing Christians. There are several ministers who resend my weekly Torah stuff to their flock because they think it embodies exactly the kind of message they want their church to stand for.
0: Yeah. Mm. No, that's good. I, I have a, so I want to be respectful of time and recognize that uh, we could ask you questions all night, but I, I, I do have another specific question just about, you know, part of what we try to explore on this podcast is around how to, how to disagree well, in the context of community and how to, whether it be a church, um, a large congregation, or even in a small, you know, some sort of small group, how do folks actually live in community intergenerationally with different perspectives um, without being dualistic or sort of overly us versus them? It, my impression, albeit from a distance, has been that the Jewish community just has, so, there's just so much more space. Yeah. And it seems in the Jewish tradition, there's so much more space for that, that one rabbi can have a totally different perspective on a given passage than another, and they don't walk away going, well, I'm the true rabbi, or I, I, I've, I've got this right, and they're dead wrong. Frankly, in, the, in my tradition, I'll speak for myself, I mean, I, I have found it to be largely a zero-sum game. How how can you, I would just appreciate any insight, not that you could give us not only into whether or not you think that that's true, but even just helping us and giving us wisdom within the Christian tradition, how can we begin to foster a kind of community that's open to some of the disagreements, be it process or not, or um, particular interpretation around some of these passages and how to actually be be okay with that and sit with the tension in a, in a community that can move forward and, and still do life together.
1: Wonderful. I I think that's a spiritual task all of us need to be working on. Um, So I do think there are unique resources within Judaism that are available to Christians. Um, I do want to disabuse you of the notion that Jews tolerate diverse opinions and we never yell at each other and we never tell each other that they're bad Jews. That is far from the truth, alas. But... What may be different is I think those Jews who do that are in fact betraying the tradition they think they're defending. So um, one of the foundational works of Jewish thought is called the Mishnah, which is the earliest rabbinic set of practices and it's from around the year 200 of the Common Era. And, um, and what's genius about the Mishnah and new is that the Mishnah cites opinions in people's names. Rebbe Mayer says the following, but Rebbe Yehuda says the opposite, and the sages say the following. So you wind up with a Mishnah, a passage that has three opinions, and at no point does the Mishnah tell you which one to follow. Wow. So later rabbis argue about which one to follow, or which one not to follow, or a modified version, or here's a way to blend them all. But there isn't a place to look up, well, here's the one. And even the codes, which are attempting to solidify that into an authoritative practice, even that, um, one of the most famous of the codes, uh, the Shulchan Aruch, the way it made its decisions was it took the three most important codes before it and it just settled for two out of three. Hmm. Which means that at any point you could say, no, I'm going to go for the lone opinion. Um, Now, that's a hard place to live, but I think that's the genius of the Talmud. It's the genius of the Mishnah, is that they structure a religion. So, another lovely statistic I'll share with you. The Talmud, which is a famous Jewish book of argument uh, and legend and practice, um, the Talmud contains about 5,000 debates, of which (laughs) 50 are resolved. (laughs) i love it which means it's a book that understands that the questions open you up and answers shut you down so it's a book devoted to process of open debate in which people can disagree with each other but they do it verbally and they do it by making arguments well if you think this then how do you explain that and here's how i understand that verse how do you understand that verse? And and that doesn't mean they don't disagree with each other or think each other are wrong, but it means they stay in conversation. And that, I think, has to be a model for all of us today. And I think we have to recognize, particularly in our time of hyper partisanship in which everybody feels abused and misunderstood and yelled at, that we need to go back to this tradition, which in fact is found in the Bible too. So, you know, if you look at modern scholarship on the Bible, the Bible itself is made of different sources that are artfully woven together. But you can tweak out those sources again and see that God is called by different names in different sources, and God says different things. And, um, you know, you try to, for example, look at the scene of receiving the Bible at Mount Sinai, and it's not entirely clear where Moses is standing when the commandments are given, it's not entirely clear what precisely God says. In J and E and D, there are different recountings. So the Bible itself echoes the pluralism of ancient Israel, and that, I think, should be our guide. Like If we're really committed to elevating the Bible, rather Mm. than a modern ideology imposed on the Bible then we need to honor the multiple strands that are found in the Bible, and we do that by allowing for multiple ways of practicing them and speaking about them today. So, you know, far be it from this rabbi to tell Christians how to be good Christians, but I'm about to do that anyway. (laughs) Go for it. I would say that if you believe that Jesus lived his life in a way that is singularly transparent to the divine singularly responsive to the divine lure. Then you also have to concede that no human being can live that life perfectly. So any Christian today is doing their best job to be a disciple of Jesus in living the lure as transparently as possible. But that means that there's more than one way to do that, that a well-meaning Christian might practice the lure differently than a other Christian might, and certainly differently than a well-meaning Jew or Muslim or Buddhist or pagan or atheist. But if we can do that, then we can say what's important is that we help each other live the lure as each of us understand it. And so my job isn't to make you hear the same lure I hear. That's a denial that God is active and alive in the world. My job is is to help you hear your lure better, and to then have the courage to follow it. And that's your job in reverse for me. And if we could see that as our religious duty that springs out of our biblical heritage, then much of the hostility that has marred and polluted religious life and discourse for the last 2,000 years would evaporate. We would really show that we serve a god of love by loving each other more resiliently and that means loving the details which is the differences not just the broad strokes
2: wow i think that's a it's a phenomenal note to end on rabbi arson mm. thank you for, thank for you. spending time with us this evening we really appreciate the uh, we really enjoyed the conversation and appreciate your time
1: my pleasure thank you for letting me participate
2: is there uh, is there anywhere else that you could point our, our listeners, too, to, to hear more of your stuff. I know you're, you've got your public Facebook page. Is there anywhere else?
1: Yeah, so if you go to the public Facebook page, which is Rabbi Artsen, if you um, go to—I work at American Jewish University, so if you go to their website, aju.edu, you can also see many of my articles. Um, and between the two, that'll get you a lot of, a lot of Artsen.
2: Excellent.
0: Perfect. We love that. Well, thank you. And uh, Rabbi Austin, please hold just two seconds to sign off our listeners. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. More to come on the subject, and uh, thanks for listening.